I'm turning again this morning to the 10th chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter number 10, and I want to draw your attention just the last two verses of chapter 10, really going to kind of give us a subject most likely for today and also for next week. I don't anticipate we're going to cover um, all that is contained, but I want to draw your attention to verses 38 and 39 of Hebrews chapter 10. The word of God says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back under perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. I want to consider the subject this morning, which will be a bit familiar, I think, especially if you've been with us during our confession study. But I believe that this last section of Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26 down through the end of the chapter in verse 39, deals with the subject of the perseverance of the saints. When we deal and think about the perseverance of the saints, we are talking about that which is a very vital doctrine uh, to our understanding of how we are to not only live in this life, but what our hope is for eternity. Uh, The perseverance of the saints is a glorious doctrine. Uh, to know that once we are in Christ and once we are secure in Christ, uh, there is no falling away. There is no uh, going back. We are safe in Him. And we see that as the writer of Hebrews has been dealing with, we have been dealing with uh, many subjects, but it is almost as if the writer brings us to this point. He's bringing us face to face with the reality, really the expression that's found there at the end of verse 39 is he writes to those who know the certainty and the assurance of this perseverance. He says, we are not of them who draw back. It's a very declarative statement. He says, we are not No way, no how, no form, no shape are we like those who draw back. There is an assurance here. There is an assurance that wraps up chapter number 10, but yet before he gets there, he reminds us of the considerations, the serious considerations we have to think about. He's going to deal with apostasy. He's going to deal with willful sin. He's going to deal with the realities of the judgments that will come. He's going to deal with the statement of it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But yet he brings this chapter to a close by reminding us we are not of them who draw back. Again, anytime we see phrases or words like we or us, we cannot assume or imply that he isn't saying that that is applicable for every single person. The unbeliever today cannot say, we are not of them who draw back. The one today who says, I deny Christ and I deny all that He has commanded and all that He says, you cannot say, we are not them that draw back. There are many, many people in the Christian life who started the race who never finished it. There are plenty of people who were once followers of the Lord, many times in name only, maybe in membership title or privileges, 
They ran well for a season. They ran well for a time. They were looked at as people who can be followed, people who can be trusted. But in some due time, they fell, and they fell by the wayside. We know the obvious ones, Judas. We know Judas Iscariot was ordained before the foundation of the world that he would be the betrayer. He would be the one who would sell our Lord for 30 pieces of silver so that Christ himself was not surprised when the day came that he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. But Judas had all the markings of a person who could say, I am not of them who draw back into perdition. He had all the outward appearances. He had all the views that would say, I will remain faithful. We have stories throughout Scripture of Demas and Diotrephes. They seem to be examples of faith. They seem to be pictures of what a Christian should be. But at the very last moment, they suddenly deny the faith. They forsake Christ. They turn away, never to return. And the Bible uses a phrase that's quite telling. They make a shipwreck. Their lives become a shipwreck. They become like that ship that was sailing so well, going in the right direction, and suddenly hits the rocks and is no longer in the family of God. Why do we find hope in the perseverance of the saints? Well, because when we think about the facts of what the writer of Hebrews here is talking about, we see that there is this picture of how the believer can have comfort and can have assurance in knowing that they are of the body of Christ. Uh, the writer here is talking in terms and he's, he's using phrase that uh, we are not of that sort. We are not. And even back in verse 30, which we'll deal, he says, for we know him that have said. These, these men are speaking in ways we know that Christ is our Lord. And yet, without the perseverance of the saints, without knowing that we are held firmly by the good grace of God, we would make a shipwreck of our own lives. The perseverance of the saints is what holds us in the faith. It is not your hold onto Christ that is holding you. It is Christ who is holding you and allows us to say, we are not of them who draw back. What do we know about the perseverance of the saints? We do know biblically, Romans 8 verses 31 through 39 teaches us that those who are truly saved by God's grace are also kept by God's grace. I'm not kept by my own grace. I'm not kept by my own willpower. I'm not kept by my own strength. I'm kept by the persevering hand of God. I have never nor will ever hold myself in the faith. I will never be able to hold myself on my own merits or my own strength it is he who has me in his hand. Secondly, we know that no one who truly believes ever becomes a non-believer. If you are truly a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you will never, ever, ever become a non-believer. You may have seasons in life where there may appear to be a falling away. There may appear to be a drawing back. But the perseverance of the saints guarantees that as God has his hold on you, you will never fully fall away and you will never draw back into perdition again as you once were. It is only the perseverance of the saints held by God that gives us that comfort. 
I am thankful each and every day that God did not leave it in my hands to hold myself in the faith. Because if I had anything to do with it, I would certainly fall away and I would certainly draw back no matter how pridefully arrogant we are thinking I would stay. You would fall away. You would draw back. Thirdly, we understand about the perseverance of the saints that those who seem to be believers who do totally fall away or they are those who fall away who seem to be believers are either number one, they are disobedient saints who need to repent or else they were never believers. So you can fall into sin. You can fall into and allow yourself to be carried away to where it would appear that, but you are really just in disobedience. You're in rebellion that needs to be repented of. But I think we're understanding the difference, but you never totally fall away. In many cases, only God truly knows. That's a hard thing for us as humans to accept. I cannot truly look at any individual and with certainty guarantee you that you are converted, that you are saved. You can outwardly tell me, you can demonstrate, but it's only Christ, it's only Christ and through the Spirit of God that's going to confirm and verify that you are indeed in the family of God. The presence of the Spirit is that which gives us the assurance that I am one of His. Someone mentioned, I saw recently, they said, how do you know? You know, we get afraid, we're afraid of these words in our modern church today. It's sad. How do I know I'm elect? Makes people cringe. It makes people jump. They say, I, that's a divisive word. No, that's a glorious word. The doctrine of election is my only hope and my certainty. And how do I know I'm elect? Because I repent of my sins and I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. That's how I know I'm elect. It wasn't because he looked at me and my outward appearance and says, listen, that one looks good. That one looks good. That one doesn't look good. That one can't do anything for me. It's only by his grace and his purposes. I don't know why God opened my eyes. I don't know why he unstopped my ears, but I do know that he did that in order that I would glorify him. That's why he did it. Not to glorify myself, not to get the, get the applause. You know that you're elect when you repent and believe the gospel. And as I often say at the end of service, and I'm saying at the beginning of service, run to Christ now. Repent of your sin now. Call upon the name of the Lord. He will in no wise cast you out. If you're waiting for some miraculous moving of the Spirit to suddenly just arrest you and against your own will just suddenly say it. Listen, repent and believe the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. They are coexisting together. But we do know the perseverance of the saints always ends in salvation. I don't start out persevering and then stop persevering. How do I know that? Because my perseverance in the faith is a work of God. But yet I am told in Philippians to work out my own salvation. I'm told to work it out in fear and trembling, which means I'm not just to sit there as if I'm not any responsibilities. I am to live as if I am indeed a child of God. I'm to do everything necessary to feed that and to understand that He has saved me for a reason. 
Why do the saints persevere? We persevere with Him only because He perseveres with us. We won't get there for a few weeks, but it was the Lord's words in Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For He said, hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Man can make a lot of promises to what he will or will not do, but when God makes a promise, God always keeps that promise. Is he saying, I'll never forsake or leave the unbelieving world? No, he's saying, I will never forsake you who are of those who will not draw back into perdition and will not return back to what we once were. Those who profess faith in Christ but do not persevere in the sanctifying spiritual growth that should accompany it, and obedience are almost certain to struggle, almost certain rather, to struggle with your assurance. If you are not striving for holiness, if you're not striving for spiritual growth, if, if you have no desire to be obedient to the things of God, I can almost assure you, you are going to struggle with your assurance. But the writer here, leading up to this grand conclusion, you see what we're doing. I'm starting with the conclusion. I'm starting with what he says, that this is what you can expect. This is what you can know if, in fact, you are one of his. Now, these things that the writer talks about and the facts of the perseverance of the saints is illustrated throughout the Bible. It's illustrated by what we observe. We do see in the scriptures, we see people men and women who do struggle with sin. We do see people who we call the heroes of the faith who struggle with sin. We see even as Jesus announced that very night that one of you who seated with me is going to betray me, they responded with that phrase, Lord, is it I? Go back and read that again. We, we just immediately assume, well, yeah, we know who it is, Judas. Think about being seated there that night when he said, I'm looking at you and one of you is going to betray me. Every one of them thought if there's a possibility, it might be me. Think about that for a moment. See, we have the privilege of seeing the entire story already written. We already see the scripture's conclusion. We already know the old cliche. We already know we're on the winning side. But being on the winning side doesn't mean that you just coast to the finish line and say, I think I'll just sit back because I don't have any responsibilities at all. No, we ought to hunger and thirst after holiness. We ought to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We ought to hunger and thirst after spiritually growing and the process of sanctification. Those are the ones that he is saying. We're not of those that draw back. After reading all the warnings we've seen in Hebrews 10 and even in some of the previous chapters, we've already mentioned, it's already been mentioned one time about warnings against apostasy. But yet here we have this conclusion in verse 39 that says very clearly that we who are in the faith have reason to rejoice and to even shout maybe with thanksgiving that we are kept by His grace. Notice that last phrase. But of them that believe to the saving of the soul. That is a rejoicing point right there. Those who understand and those who are in the faith have a point of rejoicing that we are not of those that draw back, but rather we are those who believe to the saving of the soul. And yes, 
God is still saving souls and souls are just as needed to be saved as they've always been. We haven't entered into a stage where we no longer have to proclaim the gospel. We no longer have to talk about sin. We no longer have to talk about the blood. We are still entrusted with the gospel, the true gospel, not the gospel that says you do the good works, you do the good things, and then we'll settle up your account when you get to the, the gates of the pearly gates and we'll see if you've done enough to get in here. No, that's not even close to the gospel. The gospel is not, Peter is waiting to see whether or not he'll let you in or not. Nor is the gospel simply saying, I just want to ask Jesus into my heart. No, there is a real recognition of sin that must take place. That hymn, God be merciful unto me. You realize line three of that song says, I am evil? That doesn't go over at the feel-good worship services not much anymore now. I am evil. I am undone. I am begging God to have mercy on my soul. I am begging God to allow me to come into the family of God. Not some simple, I just want to get this matter out of the way. Jesus, come into my heart. See, the sinner that's been saved has an understanding what they've been saved from. And it's not just being saved from hell. They've been saved for the glory of God. That God gets all the glory. So that as the Apostle Paul said, I will boast in nothing but the cross. It's the only thing you and I are given permission to boast about. <laughs> you realize you can't boast about your walk with God. You can't boast about anything you do. But the Bible says you can boast about the cross and Jesus Christ all you want. So when we sing hymns like, all I have is Christ, do you actually believe that? Because if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. If you have nothing more than a prayer that you prayed, you don't have anything. It's not, I have, a, I have an idea of who Christ is. No, you have Christ because Christ is the only acceptable way. Only people who have Christ can say, we are not of them that draw back. After reading these warnings, we do see that it concludes with a joyous truth. But the last section of Hebrews 10 for the believer was written specifically to encourage us in this perseverance. And the source of our encouragement is the assurance that we will, in fact, persevere unto the end. Jesus Christ himself said, My sheep hear my voice. I know their name. I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep will never perish. You preach John 10 in some churches, you'll split the church wide open. Because they say, but my part. No. No. All the eyes were not about us, the sheep. The, all the eyes were on Christ's eyes. I will. I will do this. I will lay down my life for the sheep and they will never perish. He wasn't given a hypothetical situation. If you do everything right, he's saying you'll never perish. That's the assurance of our perseverance. Romans tells us that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. People say they love each other often. 
And suddenly that love goes away. And they do separate. You realize Christ's love for us never is separated. I say it almost to a cliche, and I hope you never take it that way. It is impossible for Christ to love you more, and it's impossible for him to love you less. There's absolutely nothing you're doing to gain more love. And there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of Christ. God's elect, His children, will persevere unto the end because we will persevere because we're kept by God's immutable, almighty grace. I don't want to be held by anything else but then by God's grace. A lot of my Christian life was marked by me holding myself into the family of God. What I was doing, what I was saying, thinking that I was gaining merit with God. But I wasn't. My desire was not sanctifying grace. My desire was not obedience. My desire was, I'm doing things because I want to earn my way. And I didn't even know it. I mean, you can't be wrong for doing right, can you? You can if you think you're doing right is actually strengthening God's hold on you. You can't. And that's what leads us, now that I've started you with a glorious conclusion. If you go back with me and look at verse 26. Remember, we left off last week in verse 25 about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. But then notice how quickly this turns. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking, looking for of judgment and a fire in, fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. Notice the writer here says we have received knowledge of the truth. This here is a word against apostasy. In verses 26 and 27, the writer is describing what apostasy is. When we have to understand what apostasy is, we have to understand that the description must be understood in the proper context. That context is always important. It always matters. The Spirit is clearly declaring that apostasy is directly connected with the forsaking of Christ. An apostate forsakes Christ. To forsake means to give up, turn from, never to return to it again. It is the full and final denial of Christ. To forsake Christ means you're not only going to forsake Christ, you're going to forsake anything that has to do with Him. You're going to forsake the Gospel. You're certainly going to forsake His church. An apostate, a true apostate, is not going to sit in a church. An apostate is going to want nothing to do with the church. They're not going to want anything to do with the worship of God. And they certainly don't want anything to do with the assembly of the saints. Isn't it interesting that right after he says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together, he then jumps into what apostasy looks like. Now, unfortunately, these verses, like many others, have been corrupted by many to prove 
that true believers can be lost. He's not talking about believers losing their salvation. He's not talking about people who commit sin after being saved by the grace of God. Because I have a, a bulletin for you today. You're going to sin after your conversion. I met one preacher in my life that said he didn't sin anymore. I've met one. He was convinced. He said, I don't sin anymore. I said, do you tell your congregation that? And he said, yeah, I tell my congregation that. And he said, they can do it too. You're not going to be sinless. You've sinned today. I'm almost certain we've, you've probably sinned since you've been here. Either in, maybe in thought, maybe indeed. But you understand that if sin is the very thing, if we sin that we could lose it. No, he's talking about willfully sinning after these things. We hear and see the truth. We forsake Christ altogether. This correct interpretation of this passage has caused so much distress upon people. Imagine how the people who sat in that church that the pastor said that every time they sinned, imagine how weaker and weaker and weaker their assurance got. Because their pastor set the guideline that said, you can attribute this. And folks, people do listen when someone's telling the Bible. They say, I've got to reach that then. Even the Apostle Paul himself said, you only follow me as I follow Christ. And if the Bible says, and Paul himself in so many of his epistles says, listen, I don't, even, I don't even do, Romans is the class, I don't even do the things that I want to do. I keep doing the things I don't want to do. Are you telling me that the Apostle Paul was in and out of his salvation all of his life? Nobody spoke more about the grace of God than Paul. That's why so many people say that the Apostle Paul was the writer of Hebrews. And there is one verse I came to this week that actually kind of makes you say, hey, it could be. But again, what we've been looking at is the context matters, the text matters. After a person has truly repented and believed and embraced and professed the gospel of Christ, especially the great truths that we've been looking at, especially in this chapter, and believes that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only and all-sufficient sacrifice, that it's His blood alone is what affected our atonement. It is only then that we can fully say and have given evidence that we are of the family of God. But what he goes on to say is, notice he says, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Now he's giving the illustration of what the Mosaic law did. Those that were against the Mosaic law and those uh, who, who continued just to refute it and refuse it, say, I will not be subjected to the law of God. They suffered a certain judgment and fiery indignation. What does it look like today? We'll look at verse 29. Of how much sore punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. How much worse is the punishment going to be for the person who completely denies the sufficiency of Christ and completely denies the, the efficacy of his sacrifice? He's going to come to the conclusion that if he does that, there is no other hope for him, there is no other sacrifice for him, and his eternity, his eternity is set. 
There is no other hope. If you deny the sufficiency of Christ and his effectual atonement, friend, you do not have any other hope. Whatever you are hoping in is false. Because it's only in the sufficiency of Christ alone. The wording is important. Again, you might have a different translation, but it should mean close to the same thing. But he says, How much sore the punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God? If you completely deny and cast out the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and His blood, it is as if you are picking that up and you are stomping it under your feet. You have no other hope. You have no other place you can turn to. You have no other guidance. You have nothing that can lead you. It is only His blood. There is no other sacrifice for sin. So stop trying. There is no other Savior coming. Sadly, most of the nation of Israel, again, we've got to get into the reality and the ordaining of God and the blindness that they are experiencing. They are looking for a Savior that isn't coming. They're looking for another. They're looking for another. And He's not coming because He's already come. He's already come. He's already bled and He's already died. He lived a perfect sinless life, fulfilled the law and kept the law perfectly, which is what you and I couldn't do. He's already come and accomplished salvation. By dying on the cross at Calvary, He did not make salvation possible. He actually accomplished your salvation. Right there is where your salvation was accomplished. Not He did His part. Now you come meet Him in the middle. There's no help for the person. There's no hope for the person who denies. Now remember, we started this study way many, many months ago. And part of the initial introduction to this book was that there was a desire by some to go back to the Mosaic Law and ceremonies. To go back, not just to practice them, but to rely on them as if they had saving merit in them. Now again, we've talked about that the law mattered. Those things were not without value. But if I sat here today and I said, listen, Christ needs something more. He needs another sacrifice. He needs something in the ceremonial law, for example. They need, he needs another sacrifice. I am denying the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work. The willful, if a person who turns willfully from Christ, there is absolutely no hope. In the book of Acts, chapter number 4, we sometimes uh, glance through this verse because it is a verse that's so well known. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The previous verses talk about the name of Christ. Verse 10, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Anyone who willfully turns away from Christ... There is no hope. 
The willful sin in Hebrews 10 verse 26 is the true abandonment of Christ. It is the abandonment of His gospel. It is the abandonment of His worship and His people. It's going back to a works-based religion. If your faith is based on works, you are abandoning Christ. Your works are not going to save you. That's exactly how that apostasy is described. Again, we see in verses 28 and 29, God gave the law to Israel by Moses. Anyone who rejected God's law or set, set aside the rules and the sacrifices of the law, Deuteronomy 17 verses 1 through 6 says those that did that were put to death. That's a pretty serious matter. At that moment in time, if you put the law of God aside and you rejected it, you were put to death. The tabernacle, the temple, all the ordinances we've learned about, the law stood. Folks, don't ever believe those things were not binding. They were binding on the people. The law was binding. We get this idea that the law wasn't binding. It was binding on the people. They were to obey the law. If God was to pour out His wrath even today upon those who maybe, maybe even make light of those things we've talked about, Think how severe, if he's so severe on those who did not have the light that you and I have. How much sore is the punishment going to be on those who have the light? We are accountable for what we have received. And I've said this often, as a New Testament believer, you and I have more knowledge of what the Word of God is that says than they did. But to think that we could return back to the things that they were, were binding upon them at that time is to turn away from Christ. In Galatians chapter number 5, Paul dealt with this with the Galatians. And of course, you know the whole premise of the book of Galatians is another gospel. And it's been a number of years I preached through that book. But Galatians chapter 5 verses 1 through 4, we see this reminder of this. Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. There were, there were some that thought, I just reintroduced circumcision and I've got it. No, he says, if you're going to do that, then you have, to be, you have to be obedient to the entirety of the law, not just that one aspect. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you, Christ, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will none otherwise be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. You know, I've heard that verse, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump about my own personal sin, and I think there's an application there. But you know, he's talking about a little leaven, even a little bit of good work sprinkled in with the righteousness of Christ, you completely ruin the whole lump. It's amazing. The only way I ever heard that growing up was that was my own sin, that my little leaven was my 
the bad music I listen to or the shows I watch I shouldn't watch. And again, set no wicked thing before your eyes. But do you know if I just put a sprinkle a little bit of works in there and I sprinkle a little bit of works into my salvation or my perseverance, I'm leavening the whole lump. That's what his point was. You, Christ profits you nothing if you have anything to do with this. Even your perseverance. Now, folks, I know, sadly, we tend to shy away from really strong Bible words these days. The most popular churches in America are not churches that are talking about perseverance of the saints and fiery judgment. They're talking about how you can be, have a blessed day today and how you can enjoy everything now. And God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to smile. God wants you to have all this. Yet the Bible talks very, very clearly about apostasy, willful sin. Casting off Christ. Sometimes I think, sadly, we don't realize how serious a matter it is when we deal with a person who actually believes that they are being saved by works. Because we're not talking about some kind of temporary separation. We're talking about that which is condemning. Eternally condemning. Don't shy away from the strong words in which the Lord uses to describe what apostasy actually is. The the greatest phrase, I think, that describes that, it's the treading under the foot, the Son of God. Notice that's that's what the writer's words, it's treading underfoot, not the idea but trodden underfoot the Son of God Himself. It's as if you're stepping on Christ. And that's not meant to just be an emotional statement. That's what he compares this to. Apostasy is to put, the, put Christ under your foot and step on Him. It's counting His blood as worthless. It's counting His perfect sinless life as of no value. It's to call Christ an ordinary, meaningless person. And you're doing so, look at what it says, you're doing so at the end of verse 29, in spite of or despite the Spirit of grace. We are in that age of what we call the age of grace. doesn't mean God wasn't gracious in the Old Testament, but we are in an age where biblically it says there is no excuse. There's no excuse for you today to put under your foot Jesus Christ. There is no excuse for that. Verses 30 and 31, we see this second part of this. He says that, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those who know the truth, he says. But then there are those who abandon Christ. So if those who abandon Christ are as a result, are those who never knew Him. If you abandon Him, quote-unquote, you never knew Him. Because the doctor of the perseverance of the saints says you will not draw back into perdition because He will not let you go back into perdition. So what does He say awaits those? They... Judgment of God. We know verses such as what the epistles, the three of the first epistle of John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. That's not about church membership, folks. That's about the reality of those who 
abandoned Christ, abandoned the faith, were never, they were never in the faith. I've sadly heard that so many times in my life that here's what he means. He means church membership. That's not the context of that. It's the context of those who are abandoning Christ. The one that goes out from us is the one who was never of us, who has basically forsaken Christ and says, I don't want anything to do with him. Now again, are there seasons in our life where we can appear to be away from the Lord? Can a, sin, can a Christian fall into willful obedience? You bet we can. Can we have seasons in our life when we truly are not what we're supposed to be? Yes, we can. But will we ever fully draw away and will we ever fully abandon Christ? If a person fully abandons Christ and says, I am done with them forever, I'm never coming back. Biblically speaking, we can only declare that they are guilty of the sin of apostasy. So many times people define an apostate as somebody who was once, they were once saved. No, they were never saved if they truly apostatize. Because if they could, then that means that they could lose their salvation, which basically undoes the entire Bible. We got bigger problems then. Matter of fact, we got, we got major problems. Yet, these people that abandon Christ, those people that go out from Him, they are used as a warning to us. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an eternal and living God. The Apostle Paul, even in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 21 through 22, he puts this in a way about how we should view and how we should look at the, the things of God and specifically of Christ. In Romans 11, verse 21, and he gives a very, very staggering thought about what unbelief does. Talking about the Jews, he says in verse 18, he says, Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Now, you see what he's doing here. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. Something that's broken off, in that particular case, is not put back up. But he says, you who stand, you who stand in faith, respond in arrogance. If your translation says that, throw it away. He says, be not high-minded, but fear. Even you who are standing by faith, don't be high-minded about this. Be fearful. Because here's what he says, For if God spared not the natural branches, that's the Jews, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. Watch this. For God is able to graft them in again. Now, he's not talking about the one who lost the salvation and comes back in. But this reality here, this judgment that's waiting. And then in verses 32 through 34, we'll see if we can cover just an introduction to this section. He does something and he calls them to remembrance. To call someone to remembrance is to call someone who has a memory of it. 
If I ask you to remember something, I'm speaking to you as one who has knowledge of it. I would never ask you to remember something you were never a part of. I would never ask you to remember a person you've never met. But in verses 32 through 34, notice he says, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used. Now, this is, the, this is the verse I came across this week that kind of made me perk up and say, wow, he says something that Paul talks about a lot. For he had compassion of me in my bonds. Honestly, I never really noticed that before. Now, I, it could have been another writer, but Paul spoke so often about his bonds and being in bonds for Christ. And he talks about people as they were made a laughingstock, he's saying. After you were illuminated, after you had this knowledge of the truth, uh, you suffered reproach, you suffered afflictions. You became companions of anybody who was part of this. And he says, you had compassion on me in my bonds. And you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves, here it is, that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. He's talking about perseverance here. He's talking about even in afflictions and reproaches. You have something so much better awaiting you. An enduring and better substance. The Spirit here is calling us to remember, to encourage us in this perseverance, to encourage us to stand firm in our faith, to trust Christ even when the temptation comes to cast him away. Folks, I am fearful that there will come a day when every person will have to make a decision and whether they are going to cast off Christ or they're going to stand with him. We just don't know what that is in this country yet. Nobody is actually telling you life or death decision. Are you for Christ or are you against him? Because the only right answer, if you want to live, is to say you're against Christ. Think about what's happening here. To hold this confidence in Him, Paul urges us to remember these days of faith when we endured mocking, we endured ridicule, we endured affliction. When you truly left the world to walk with Christ, to walk with Christ in this world does not allow you to live peacefully, but you knew that you had in heaven, you had a, an inheritance so that even if you lose everything here, you have an enduring, you have an enduring, better, what's he say? A better substance. And then he says this, and we'll finish here. Cast not away, therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. In other words, if you have need of patience, that after he says, you have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, ye might receive the promise for yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Paul, can, or Paul, see I'm saying it now. The writer's concluding this chapter with this comforting, assuring word of admonition. Don't cast away your confidence in what? Your confidence in Christ. Don't take your eyes off of Christ. Don't let anything come between him and you. 
Folks, you are going to be assaulted and assailed on every side by the temptations. And Satan, it does say, he will roar against us. But the certainty, and Paul wrote about this in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever we suffer now, the perseverance of the saints is where our hope is. There is a great recompense of reward at the end of our journey. Folks, I want you to think about as we conclude this morning, we shall be with Christ. We shall be like Christ. We shall see Him as He is. We will see Him face to face. The Bible says God shall wipe away all the tears from our eyes. When you enter into the heavenly glories, these things of this earth will no longer matter. Our perseverance is by the promise of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that gives us the promise. The just shall live by faith. What faith? The faith that's in Christ. True believers live by faith, not by the law. They don't live by works or merit or ceremony. We receive spiritual life by Christ. Folks, the perseverance of the saints guarantees that we we will be sustained and we will be kept by the power of God. That will never, ever fail. True believers cannot, will not, abandon Christ and to seek something that is much weaker. Christ alone is our life. Christ alone is what keeps us. It'll keep you to the end. At one day, we will be presented faultless before the throne of God. Faultless, standing in the presence of the glory of God. And the only reason we'll be standing there is because of this wonderful doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. If we had to hold on until the end and then hold on until eternity, we would all fall back. We would all draw back. And heaven would be unoccupied. Because not a single person would be there apart from the righteousness of Christ and His persevering grace. We are not of them that draw back. I hope that will encourage us this morning. Let's conclude by singing, I think the appropriate hymn for this type of a message is on 388. He will hold me fast. Let's stand as we sing and conclude our time today.